Hello and welcome to this Royal Children's Hospital podcast series, Life, Love and Loss, Caring for a Child Who Is Dying, produced by the Victorian Paediatric Palliative Care Program and nationally funded by Quality of Care Collaborative Australia. My name is Lena Keneva and I'm a journalist and the facilitator of this five-part series. This series will focus on the experience of parents whose children have died or are likely to have a short life. The parents we're about to hear from have been supported by palliative care teams to face multiple challenges in caring for their own children. They bravely share their experiences to inform and prepare other families who may need to face similar challenges. In this episode, we look at life after loss, parents and families living in shadows and sunshine. The loss of every child is devastating and tragic. It's a highly emotional time of profound sadness and grief. It's extremely difficult, painful and challenging for every family to comprehend and face life without their child. Today, we're joined by two mothers that we've spoken to before in this series. Priyanka and husband William's daughter Lily was born with an incurable brain condition known as Miller-Dieker syndrome and she died around 10 months of age. Beck's eight-year-old son Gideon was diagnosed with a GBM brain tumour. He underwent surgery, radiotherapy and targeted chemotherapy but died just 12 months later. Beck and her partner Lee have three other children. Welcome back. Thanks. Thanks, Lena. Priyanka, could you tell us a little bit about Lily? And while we know Lily's story a little bit, tell us about that end stage that that is the worst part, obviously. Sure. So Lily lived for 10 months and during her life, though it was a short life, it was also such a big life. Um, throughout the whole time, we really felt like we were parenting into the unknown, sort of parenting without some sort of survival net. And we knew that it was our job to see her into a grave, I suppose, because she was going to die. As she got sicker, um, you just learn to adapt and to cope with what's going on. So you don't necessarily see the end um, as it's happening. But when Lily was 10 months old, she did start to decline rapidly and we worked harder to make plans to keep her at home and we were supported to do that as we prepared for her to die, although it was still a shock. Um, And then she died at home with... She'd spent the day with me. Um, Again, I thought she'd turned a corner and we'd had a couple of terrible nights and I remember waking up the morning that she died and Will, my husband, had taken over the shift so I would do the the midnight shift and then Will would do sort of 5am onwards and Lily was smiling for him and doing her little coos and he'd given her breakfast and she'd had a bath and... We went out and got coffee and we went to the pharmacy and got more meds. Uh, I think I got some Pedialyte for her. And she was so good that day that I said to Will, look, why don't you go to the pub? Go and have a beer with some mates. Like, you need some time out. 
I'll be fine. And then we'd arranged for a very close friend of ours. She would come over and, and be with me while he went to the pub with her husband. And then we'd all come back together for pizza for dinner. And that whole day, Lily lay on me. So she lay on me and I watched Gossip Girl or something like that. And even when, uh, you know, I needed to change her or do her meds or whatever to carry her, I'd hold her against my chest all day. And I remember eating cheese and crackers and the crumbs falling on her head and she slept. And I went to get more food from the cupboard and I held her and then sat, laid, we lay on the couch. And it wasn't until later that evening when um, both of the guys had come home and my friend was there that uh, Lily had another seizure and I went to get her meds and as I did that I handed her to my friend Claire and I think Lily waited until both Will and I had stepped out of the room so I said I'll just grab her meds and I came back in and she took her last breath in Claire's arms and Claire said I think she stopped breathing and that wasn't unusual so I thought that's okay and I grabbed her back straight away and she didn't take another breath. So Will and I went, took her into our room and we called the doctors and we called Palcare and our first instinct was like, breathe, breathe, take another breath. And then I remember saying to Will, it's okay, like just let her, let her go. And we just held her and cuddled her and kept talking to her and we... We later learned that the the sense of hearing is often the last thing to go or the sen- maybe it's a sense of touch as well. Uh, so she may have been able to hear us and she could definitely feel us holding her. And after a while, I, I suppose her heart just stopped beating um, and it feels like we were frozen in time in that room until at some point the palliative care nurse turned up to confirm a time of death and... I spoke in the last podcast about how I'd had this dream when Lily died that there'd be music playing and candles and soft lighting and my girlfriend had listened to that conversation so when we came back out of the room she lit the candles and done the soft lighting and put the gentle music on so that that was there and um, yeah we, we just held Lily for hours and then we gave her a bath um, and dressed her in a beautiful little white smocking outfit with her beautiful stockings. And she was always cold, so I still had to make sure that she was warm. And we cuddled her um, and she stayed with us for that whole night until the next day. And it was raining the next day, like the heavens were crying. It was absolutely pouring and thundering down. And we... I'd been told by palliative care by then that if we wanted, we could take her to a cuddle cot at very special kids hospice and they would have a room for her. So I just remember putting her in her baby seat in the car. It's a very strange thing to drive a dead child in their baby seat. Um, and we drove. My parents had flown in by then, family had flown in. So they all came with us and we drove to very special kids and took her to her little room, what would be her room for the next five days. Um, And we took everything with us. We took her toys and her musical instruments, her bells, and she stayed in the cuddle cot for five days until her funeral. So during the course of those five days, the family was able to fly in and come and say goodbye to her and sing to her and cry with her and talk with her and... um, 
yeah, I think that was a really special thing to have. Wow, thanks for sharing that. Um, and Beck, are you able to tell us about that? Your last days, time with Gideon? Yeah, I am. I'm just getting teared up, you know, <laughs> hearing your story. Um, so uh, Gideon was um, lived for 12 months and um, probably things sort of started going a bit downhill, I'd say seven months after diagnosis. And that's when um, on one of his sort of routine MRIs, we found out that the tumour, which we already knew had come back after surgery, had spread to the other side of his brain and was and was really sort of looking bad. And, and so we knew then that it wouldn't be a question of, um, you know, if he survived, which it would just be sort of, you know, when. And this was just, just before Christmas, so we still had our summer holidays and went away down to the beach that we usually do and we all sort of enjoyed that. And Gideon was still um, walking with his limp because he had hemiplegia, but um, his um, symptoms just progressed slowly. Um, he became more nauseated and had more difficulty swallowing um, initially thin fluids and then um, th- um food and had difficulty with his medication. So we made the decision of putting in a nasogastric tube to help him with his tablets. And um, we started introducing a little bit of feeds and fluids overnight because we felt that um, he sort of just had a better quality of life during the day if he had sort of something in his tummy. Um, And then he even went back and we were getting into starting grade three, but he was just becoming increasingly more tired and we could see that the weakness had spread to the other side of his body. So walking became a lot slower and he needed to hold on to our hands to um, stabilise himself to walk. Um, And then his speech just became slower. There was no problem with his understanding and and so everything, just, just much more tired. I remember the doctor saying, you'll just notice that he's more tired throughout the day. And I remember that, um, you know, Gideon was eight and a half by then and he was knew that he was far too old to have an afternoon sleep. And sometimes on the trips to and from hospital or in the ca- on the couch in the afternoon, he'd fall asleep. And it always made us nervous because we knew he would wake up so upset that he'd fallen asleep that that wasn't what he was meant to do. Anyway, and eventually got to a stage where... He didn't get upset falling asleep. Anyway, um, but so he was, you know, still going to school and for short hours in February and in March. But then at the end of March was when um, he started using a wheelchair. And I remember um, that we'd use the wheelchair um, a bit sort of for trips you know, on the weekends and Gideon didn't have a problem with that because he was tired. But um, when it came to him first using the wheelchair at school, that sort of took a lot of working up for me to to use because it was really like a, a public announcement. And I remember there was a big um, uh, event at school that he came to. He used to only go for an hour or two and he'd have an aide with him or one of us would stay. And I was just nervous when everyone was seeing him in a wheelchair. And once that episode had finished, I sort of was relieved. Um, anyway, and so his um, symptoms of um, increased a little bit and he we needed um, some to add some medications for him to sort of... Um, oh, gosh, it's hard to sort of put my finger on it but um he was a bit nauseated and just was a little bit moody and 
and things were sort of just progressing sort of sometimes rapidly and then sometimes they'd slow a little bit. Um, but the hardest thing was really when he lost the ability to speak. That was really hard. I think he was frustrated and we were frustrated because um, we wanted to be able to satisfy his needs quickly, but we couldn't fake it that we didn't understand sometimes what he was saying to us. So we had made a communication board with uh, photos of the family members and um, he had this really amazing memory. So we sort of wrote all the years and the school years. So if we were telling him a story, he could tell us what year it happened in and and he also loved people doing naughty things. So he had a whole page of swear words, actually, that my sister made. So that was, you know, those things just sort of lighten the mood a bit. Um, but I suppose we really knew that things were changing. Um, it would have been 10 days before he died when he basically became non-responsive. So he was effectively sort of in a coma. And um, we had made the decision... I think from the outset that we wanted him to be at home with us. Um, and by then to manage his pain because he wasn't swallowing, he had a subcutaneous um, drip and uh, the palcare nurses would come each day and change the medications. And um, when Gideon stopped being responsive, I guess the whole family thought, oh, this it could happen overnight. And um, he was also having trouble swallowing um, his secretion. So just, you know, simple things like we swallow, that's what he had difficulty with in that 10-day period. And so often, um, you know, we'd have to lift him over our shoulder. Lee was good at doing that and sort of almost sort of drain it and, and, and make him comfortable. Um, but we sort of got into the hang of that and we sort of thought, what's going to happen overnight? And then he sort of settled into a routine. And so we sort of settled into routine. I always like walking and I was sort of didn't want to be inside the whole time. So in the wheelchair, we would just go out for a walk every morning. And I guess to anyone else, it just looked like he was asleep. Um, and then we did all the nice things. You know, we listened to our favourite songs and the kids just got used to, they just you know, understood that Gideon was tired and and so and that was also during that period was a significant um, Jewish holiday and so Gideon sort of still got to participate and actually it must have been a few nights before he, you know, um, started being non-responsive. He was able to sit up with us in his special chair at the table and open his eyes and listen and that was, I, I guess it sort of felt like an achievement that he got that he got through that holiday and we were able to have him with us. And so in the end, um, when he died, it was after, you know, we have a special Shabbat Friday night meal and the family were over and we were all just relaxing on the couch. And then we noticed at about 10 o'clock at night that his breathing had started becoming um, different and he was taking sort of slower, shallow breaths and there was a longer space between his breathing. And we'd spoken to the um, palcare nurses and they said, look, you know, this could mean that the end is coming near. And sometimes there was a long pause. And by this stage, Gideon was sleeping in our bed at night. And, it, and I sort of thought to myself, oh, I don't want to go to bed at night with him between us and knowing that we're going to be doing this the whole night. It just seemed a bit sort of scary. Um, and we just lay on the couch and some of our siblings were with us. And we never ended up going to bed because it must have been a, sort of about midnight. Um, we 
were he was sitting and it was just another long breath and a pause and we were actually on the phone to the palliative care team because we weren't sure if we needed to give him some top-up medications and um, I said before in the previous podcast that I'd missed hearing Gideon's voice those few weeks when he wasn't able to talk and I was just hoping you know you hear stories of people saying that someone was able to wake up and say something and I knew that because of the nature of his disease and what part of his body was occupying that he wouldn't all of a sudden be able to do that but in between one of those last breaths he sort of did a sigh like that and it was just so nice to be to hear his voice and then um we were on the phone to the nurse and then um I, I so Gideon was lying on the couch and we were sort of watching him intently like kneeling watching him on the couch and I was looking at his eyes and all of a sudden I noticed that his eyes were dilated they were fixed so they weren't responding and I said oh, I think I think that's it and we sort of hung up on the nurse and we realized that that was it and it was sort of really pleasant in the end calm yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, that must have been about midnight. And then we called my parents and Lee's parents and some of the aunties to sort of come and uncles to come and say goodbye. And I think they really appreciated that. Um, and we then they came to collect Gideon probably 5am before the kids woke up. We, we wanted to do it that way. And then I remember Lee carried Gideon out to the car and I sort of, you know, um, seemed so wrong that he should be carrying him out in this white sort of, you know, blanket. But it was nice that we were able to do that. But I was also thankful that it was still dark so our neighbours didn't have to see this. Yeah, and then um, and then um, it's the Jewish custom to have the burial fairly soon afterwards. So he was buried um, basically that day because he died Friday night and the burial was, oh, sorry, 24 hours afterwards. Mm. Yeah. Thanks, Vic, for sharing that grief is experienced by the whole family and the wider family and community networks. Grieving is an individual process and, as we've heard, a roller coaster of often unpredictable emotions. Grief is lifelong. There's no timeline for grief or grief responses. Bereaved families experience good days and bad days. Bereaved parents do not stop parenting. A range of emotions are experienced and families tell us it's okay to be okay and it's okay to not be okay. It's normal that anniversaries and other significant times for intense painful feelings of grief, sadness and loss to be experienced all over again. Many families find individual ways to remember and honour their child, talk about and include their child in family stories, recall happy memories and find comfort and pleasure in this. Some families find meaning in contributing to legacy building in the name of their child via fund runs, foundation grants, memorials, scholarships or contributing in meaningful activities for the future. And I know both our parents here today have done similar things Priyanka, how did you try to remember Lily and um, keep it going? You've had another child. What have you done? Um, so the day after Lily's funeral, I discovered I was pregnant again. So that was crazy wow. and a really big thing to try and process at the same time as grieving. And our friends actually came to us and they said that they wanted to do something to remember Lily and how would we feel about setting up a charity in her name or a foundation. We hadn't thought about it 
until they said it. And then I was like, yes, that is a brilliant idea. And what we thought was that this new baby, if he survived, because at that stage I didn't quite believe that I would ever be able to have a living child, um, if this new baby was meant to be and would live a life, that the new baby would be able to be involved in the foundation and that would be a wonderful way for him to know his sister. And that's what we've done. So we set up the Lily Calvert Fund and it supports um, children with life-limiting illnesses and um, we do work with music therapy because music is one of the things that Lily loved and we had a music therapist that came to our home and every every time we had the music therapist, Lily just lit up with joy and we learnt how music can bring tiny moments of joy into terrible moments of life. So our fund supports uh, musical therapy um, through the distribution of little music therapy kits around hospitals Australia-wide and palliative care programs Australia-wide and that we do fundraisers and we sell masks in the current COVID environment and do all sorts of things to kind of keep Lily's memory alive. Uh, we share a lot about Lily as well and what we realised very early on is that we wanted people to have permission to talk about Lily and to say her name. And I'm always really big on communication. So for me, I didn't want to get to a milestone and be disappointed that no one had said anything or to feel like Lily was forgotten. So I was very proactive and I still am about my expectations for our family members and friends in remembering Lily. So we would say from the, we sort of started saying from the outset, we want you to say her name. Please tell us stories of Lily, share stories of Lily. Don't feel like you're too afraid to, to mention her. And even when I went back to work, I um, worked with my boss to send an email out to everybody that explained what had happened, but also let people know that it was okay for them to ask me about Lily and I wanted them to ask to see photos of her and I wanted them to have permission to be able to talk around about their children around me and that there's nothing worse than that feeling of people not knowing what to say and then conversations quickly finishing because they're talking about their healthy kids and they don't want to upset you. So for me, I wanted that openness and I had a lot of people say that was helpful to them in the workplace. Um, and so we continue to do that and I think it's a really useful tool to communicate what you want so that you you don't get disappointed if people don't bring up bring your child up if you've told them usually they will and a lot of people a lot of family members are too afraid and they're really relieved when you give them that advice that was the you know the kind of feedback we got. Um, Beck, you've had another child as well how have you been able to keep Gideon alive in the family setting in the sense of you know the big occasions and, and talking about him and keeping his memory there? Um, oh, there's so, so many things I want to say can I add something yes. about um, so about what Priyanka said, first of all, I agree with you about the music therapy. Gideon had that when he had his radiotherapy and he loved it. And the music therapist had um, an app with fart and burp noises and Gideon <laughs> loved all of that. And we would do that all the time. We'd bring, because Lee plays guitar and we'd bring the guitar to radiotherapy and that continued at home. And my even when he was really sort of unwell, my cousin would bring her guitar around and that was just, it lightens the mood mm. for the child and for everyone else and it's yeah so incredible um and I also wanted to comment that yes I think we had a similar attitude about um telling people they wanted to talk about Gideon mm -hmm. and the way I was thinking about that is um 
I think I was on some forum about um, people with brain tumours and there was um, people writing and they were often adults whose spouses had died and they'd said they'd gone to work and no one had spoken to them about Mm. their spouse and it was just this awkward silence and they didn't want that. And so I also decided early on that I wanted to make people understand that we wanted to talk about Gideon. So when we gave the eulogy at his funeral, the last part was us saying we know it might seem hard for you to cope with this, but we want to hear your stories and we want to talk about him. And I think, you know, people gave us feedback that they thought that was valuable. And again, when Lee and I went out back to work, we sent emails sort of saying that as well. Um, So you were asking me about... The family. So what about the big things? You know, what happens when he would have been oh, 11? Yes, yes. So um, we wanted to make it into something enjoyable rather than something that we might dread. And we've been going to some of the bereavement groups at the hospital here and um, a parent who'd been bereaved for a lot longer said that they had asked um, their surviving children to choose an activity that they wanted to do. And so we thought that's a great idea. Um, So Gideon has had two birthdays since he died, so he would have been 11 a few weeks ago. And our tradition now is that we go and stay at a hotel in the city and we go out for dinner and we go for a swim and we just do fun activities. We played mini golf and the kids really look forward to it. And I was initially really sort of maybe dreading, I don't know if that's the right word, his first birthday, but it was actually enjoyable. So, And then we make a birthday cake and they decide to decorate it in colours that he would like. So everything is sort of celebrated in a way that we think he would enjoy. Um, so, And we do that with the other milestones. We've only had one anniversary of his death, but, um, you know, there are certain things in Jewish tradition that you do to commemorate someone, these significant dates. So we do that and then we add our own thing onto it as well. And for the kids, it's not something... Those events are not sad. They look forward to it. And, um, yeah, and I just hope that, um, you know, when Gideon died, he had two younger siblings and now we have a new baby who's seven weeks old. And I hope that he will be able to embrace all those things like the other siblings. And I think he will because it will just be part of what's done in the family. So our extended family, you know, will join us Um, in doing the birthday cake for Gideon and then we'll have our own time of doing something just the immediate family. Yeah. This is a tough question and many people talking about other people being able to talk about your child that's passed. How how does a mother or a father keep going in those immediate days after the loss? Is there anything that you can say about... Um, how you survived it, what kept Mm. you going? I think um, immediately you're in shock straight away and for us we very much came together as a couple and we walked. (laughs) We just walked. We did a lot of walking walking too. All around Melbourne. Yep. Different suburb each day. Yeah, (laughs) aimlessly, just looking at the trees, walk into a shop and look around and then walk back out again. And I had girlfriends that would walk with me just aimlessly and they they did that at the initial diagnosis too. So, And I think sometimes when you're dealing with a terminal diagnosis, that shock that you absorb at that time is almost as big as the shock when they're actually gone. So there were some 
strange familiarities in losing Lily as diagnosis time with Lily. Um, so that that shock, but also recognising that you have to give yourself a break from grief every now, now and again. So you need to find something, preferably not a vice like alcohol and drugs, as tempting as it might be for us. It was watching something like Harry Potter. We would just need to switch off and watch something that we used to call a safe movie. So, you know, in our earlier days, we'd go out and get really drunk. And then on a Sunday, this is well before children, you'd watch a safe movie. And it was always a comforting movie, something like, you know, Harry Potter or something that could take you off and you wouldn't feel as hungover. And it, it started as a bit of a joke, but we went back into our safe movies. So it was something that wouldn't make you feel fearful or have any tension, that you could just have a two-hour timeout from the reality of what was happening to you. The movie would finish and you'd go back to, oh, that's right, my baby died seeing every other person in the world pregnant or pushing a baby, which is what it feels like when you've lost a child and you don't have one anymore. Um, It's in your face all the time. So you need to put those things in place to protect yourself. And I also, I think when you lose a child, you want to tell everyone, but, and and of course it's different for everyone and everybody's journey will be different. And I know as soon as I, uh, after I lost Lily, whenever anybody asked me if I had a child, I would say, yes, but she's dead and she's, you know, in heaven and this is what happened to her. Um, And it felt that if I didn't communicate that I had a child, I was somehow disowning her. And I was pregnant, of course. So people were constantly saying, oh, is this your first? And aren't you excited? Um, So I felt like I constantly had to defend her and say, no, it's not my first. I learned after a while that it was my decision who I told and that by choosing not to tell someone wasn't denying Lily's existence. You know, not everybody deserves to know about your child. So I decided that I would pick and choose. And sometimes that might be the person standing in the line behind me in the post office. At other times, it's not my Uber driver. You know, it just depends on how I feel at each time. And learning that really helped strengthen me in going forwards and choosing and being a little bit more judicious in how I share. Because sometimes you share about this huge, devastating thing that's happened to you And the person's reaction is terrible or they just skip over it and ignore it because they don't know what to say. And and there's nothing worse, I think, than than when that happens. Uh, I'm almost lost for words because (laughs) that is just, you know, it's um, you had a reason to smile and be happy. You are pregnant again. Mm. So there must have been moments of trying to understand that you were feeling terrible and then smiling for another reason. Is there a guilt at smiling? Is there a guilt at, 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 at feeling better some days than not some days? Look, I think for – I couldn't believe that I would get a healthy child. So the pregnancy was more like running a marathon every day. There wasn't a lot of joy or hope in it. And we actually took – after Lily died, three weeks after she died, we went – Um, We cashed in all our frequent flyer points and we went to Japan for three weeks and just took ourselves away from everything. Uh, We needed to just completely switch off and not talk to anybody but each other and, again, wandering. So we'd probably walked all of Melbourne. We were ready to go to Japan and we just walked Japan. Um, There wasn't a lot of joy in my new pregnancy because I just couldn't believe I would get there and... Before Lily, I'd had a traumatic ectopic pregnancy loss, so I'd 
had one loss, then lost a baby, and there was like, look, there's no way I'm getting a child. I don't get to, you know, that's not in my story. So this is going to end in some sort of other drama. So I didn't, you know, I didn't get to really feel that joy until he was placed in my arms when he was born. Okay. Um, <laughs> Beck, the same sad question. What, What is that loss like for you? What, What is it? Um, well, I, I should say that when Gideon was diagnosed, you know, Lee and I felt that we started grieving then. Mm. We didn't know yeah. when he would die, but we knew he would die before us and it wouldn't be a long period of time. And we also grieved for the fact that he wouldn't be able to do this and he wouldn't be able to do that. And some of those things that he wasn't able to do, I don't think he minded. Gideon wasn't sporty and when he had the hemiplegia and he wasn't able to run, he didn't care. Mm. So I sort of had to get my head around those sorts of things. But I felt then that when he did die 12 months later, our grieving had already begun. So it wasn't such a a shock for us. So I had sort of contemplated what, what would life be like. And it was bizarre because I thought, you know, I've got three children and I had three children for almost 21 months and then all of a sudden you know you don't have three children and people would look and see us and I think oh they probably think I only have two and and that sort of you know that sort of got to me I mean in terms of how we kept on going we kept on going in our family life because we had two other kids and so um, very early on, I understood what it was like to feel two opposing emotions. You know, I could be really happy and then upset at the same time. And that's something that I had never understood until I experienced that. Because, you know, we could laugh with the kids. And even on the day that Gideon, they would do something cute and we would laugh. So that gave us a lot of strength. And that is, you know, we wanted everything, we wanted them to you know, to not be grieving like how we were and to still um, continue and, 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 and be happy. So I think having the kids there has certainly made it um, easier for us, I think. What about parents and grandparents, the, the very close family? Um, were they able to share your grief or did it was it more difficult to see their grief? How, how did you um, navigate yeah, the as, grief of the, everyone else around uh, you? I, I guess in the time that Gideon was sick, we were sort of quite consumed with Gideon. That um, I, I knew that that they they must have almost had it double because they were seeing their children, me and Lee, suffer. Um, but they were very supportive, you know, because we're a close family and they were very involved in looking after the kids. And, you know, in particular, my mum and my sister will always swap stories and send photos to each other. And so I think that um, that they've made it helpful and they have, you know, come along with us in all these significant events. So it's – no, it's been – great having them. So you didn't have to be brave for them too? No, no. I don't think so. They let you have your own emotions around it without? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I pick and choose if I'm in a mood, if I, if I do feel like talking about it with them or if I don't. Um, and I feel like rather than having bad um, days, we we have sort of hard moments and then something else the kids do makes it all, you know, great again. Um, and I guess before Gideon died, I probably would have thought, how can I be happy and still have sort of 
life satisfaction without him, but you can. It's just mm. different. I think picking up on something you said before yeah. about learning that happiness and sadness can coexist. Yeah. And in a way, that's like cracking the code to yeah. life. Yeah. When you understand that you can be sad and you can be happy, that you can have grief and gratitude, everything shifts. Yeah. For me, it was like, oh, okay. And it is. In those quiet moments with Lily, we had some of the happiest, most beautiful memories, yet this really devastating thing was happening. And we had friends who had beautiful, healthy children born at the same time as Lily, who almost had a worse first year of parenting their healthy child than we had with this terrible, horrendous thing happening because we were able to take those bittersweet moments and really treasure them. And taking that forward into your grief is when you're like, you know that your grief is almost enough to drown you, but then something lighthearted can shake you out of it. And if you can find that humour in the worst of moments or a reason to be happy about something really small in a terrible moment, things do start to change. And I look back now at the person I was before I had Lily and I'm a completely different person and I'm a better person now, that doesn't make it okay. That doesn't make, like, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't have my child die to make me this person. But I don't have to look at it like as an if or, you know, a one or the other. It both exists. My baby died. It's horrendous. I'll never get over it. And I'm a better person because it happened but it doesn't make it worthwhile, if that makes sense. It's just sort of a way of reframing things in your mind about your whole approach to it. And with that comes, I can be happy and I can be sad. And and I am every day. I'm a really positive and happy person, but I carry this deep sadness with me. And in my most happy moments, it's tinged with this bittersweet feeling of my child should be here and I wish she was here, but I wonder what she'd be doing if she was here. And as you said, then like Jasper will come along and do something funny and shake us out of it. So it's, yeah, yeah, having that. And they're always like in the back of your mind. Like Gideon's like always there in the back of my mind. And I'm always thinking, what would he think about this situation? What would he do with a new baby? You know? Um, And then the fact that he's always in the back of my mind, you know, it's funny if you, you know, how people maybe who don't know us so well don't know that we want to talk about our Mm. child. And then we may bring them up and they may say, oh, I didn't want to bring him up. I didn't want to upset you. And it's like, do you think that just because my child isn't mentioned that I'm not thinking about yeah, them all the time? Like I've forgotten. Yeah. You never forget. Yeah. And that I think that's a yeah. really big message is you don't forget your yeah. child died. So bringing yeah. up their name yeah. isn't going to yes. make it worse. And I didn't know that before I'd been through it. I remember people at work had lost a child and I just avoided yeah. saying anything about yeah. it for fear of saying the wrong thing. But, but it's but, just worse not to say anything. Yeah, And there are a few people who probably just acquaintances of mine, but I've known them for a long time and just didn't contact me. And I just haven't forgotten that, you know. That's right. Um, yeah. yeah. So I guess I learned through that, that it's, um, it's always better to contact someone, even if it's a long time later on, or just send them a little letter because, um, you know, people say, oh, I was thinking of you, but I don't know that you were thinking of me if you didn't tell me. So that's one thing that I learned early on. Mm. Because you, you sort of think, oh, yeah. I don't want to inconvenience them and send them a message. I, I, that person doesn't have to choose to respond to your message, mm. you know. Yeah. That's right. I think it's always say something. Yeah. And if you don't know them that well, then 
to have something delivered to their house so you don't have to awkwardly run yeah. into them on the doorstep. Yeah. A care package or a bunch of flowers or some, you know, ch- chocolates, anything, yeah. those sort of things do help even when you're in the haze of grief. Mm. When you look on your bench and you're like, oh, these chocolates look yeah. nice. I wonder where they came from. And yeah. six months later, you might remember and be yeah. able to thank that person. But you're right. If you yeah. don't hear from them, it is noticed Yeah, in a subconscious yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, you do notice it. So while we're on the area of advice... Mm-hmm. Let's talk about advice for other families going through what you've been through because this is advice for your friends about, mm-hmm. you know, ha- how to help you keep the memory alive and not to be frightened of mm-hmm. that memory. Mm-hmm. What advice have you got for parents that you learnt during this grief period? Um, I would say try and be happy and uh, this sounds like such a cliche but like be in the moment and enjoy what you're doing um, and do special things and we did uh, I remember you know um, someone had said to us one of the medical team oh you can go to Disneyland you know effectively just do what you can it's like he didn't like doing those things he just liked going down to Torquay and going to the beach so we just did all those things that he liked doing and he liked going to school so we did those things and we um took lots of photos and lots of videos and, um, you know, there were a few kids entertainers that he liked and I just sort of sent them an email and asked them to make a little video clip for us and those little things just that made him happy. So I I guess I was thinking about I wanted him to enjoy his life and the kids to enjoy everything and make memories and also think about how I could make memories for later on and document it once he was no longer here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. Focusing on making memories, photos, things that you'll be able to take with you forever that will keep their memory alive and celebrating those important milestones afterwards as well. We do the same thing. We always have a party for Lily. Even last year when we couldn't have people around to our house, we had um, a, a cafe nearby put together little um, party packages and we dropped them at Lily's friends' houses so they could, we all did a little distance birthday party. Um, So I regret not taking more photos while Lily was alive because they were so focused on medical things. So the videos, all my imagery, a lot of it's focused on, on that. And when you're in the headspace of parenting such a sick child, professional photos is at the bottom of your list because it's about administering meds and calling doctors and, you know, negotiating with teams. So I I think I would probably suggest that you get, you assign that task to a friend, someone who keeps saying, what can I do to help? Mm. Give them that job uh, so that they can organise it for you and do it for you. And uh, similarly, having those keepsakes, so the fingerprints and, and um anything that you might be able to hold on to as a memory for later. And the other thing um, that we have done is, well, our daughter is at the same school as Gideon was at, so I still wanted to keep the connection with his classmates and with um, his friend's parents. And I think they, I hope they understand that, you know, Although we're, you know, we're not, you know, we're not grade five parents like we should be, we're still sort of part of that cohort. And so um, when it was Gideon's birthday the last two years, he, he used to love Cookie Monster and that sort of became his 
thing. And um, so we make chocolate chip cookies and we take them into the classroom. And we did that just a few weeks ago. And the lovely thing was that um, the kids had made sort of birthday cards and put them, you know, in a folder for us. And that was really lovely and especially lovely for the, you know, his sister sister and brothers to see that he's still sort of, you know, included somewhat. Mm. Um, that so, he still yeah. belongs to that, mm. yeah, to yeah. that, to that, and that and social they, group. And that they still have an opportunity to talk to us and tell us things and be connected. So as much as it's a bit, um, you know, bittersweet because I see them growing up and think, what would he be doing at this age? And all we can do is imagine, just like how, you know, it's almost equivalent to, you know, for your surviving children. I can't imagine what they're going to be like in five years, but it's even more mysterious, you know, when your child's not here anymore. Yeah. We have lots of lilies in our garden. So we do things like that to keep Lily's memory are alive. We always have Lily's in our house and we have lots of photos of her around and personalised books that have got her name, like the story of Lily and things like that and a painting, a a beautiful portrait of her. And so she's a part of our daily life still. We get up in the morning and we say, good morning, Lily. And I give her little ashes, got a little, um, her ashes are in our room. I kiss every day. And it's it's things like that that sound a bit weird if you haven't been through a big significant loss. And um, but actually, it's quite normal if you have to want to have your baby's ashes in your bedroom mm-hmm. every day for the rest of my life. You know, and it doesn't mean that I'm not moving on with my life or able to be happy. It just means that this is a child that we still parent. So we and her portrait is where I walk out of Jasper's room. It's on the opposite wall. So I sort of can say goodnight to Jasper and then I can say goodnight to Lily. And we talk about her a lot. So Jasper has little stories that he's starting to become more aware that she's not here, which is hard because he's three and it's starting to get a bit more confusing. Uh, But we talk about her and we hope that we can just have really honest conversations as he grows older to understand more and I think as he gets older I'm realising that he'll have a grief of his own to process and that's you know a whole new journey and I think a different podcast episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'd I'd say the same thing in that um, we when I sing the kids lullabies at night you know we start with the oldest child first so we do Gideon's first and so then we have four lullabies you know that we sing and um, when we go away on holidays we take Gideon's teddy with us and Mm -hmm. he is on the bed somewhere near the kids and when something funny happens we say Gideon this happened so um, and we talked about I think a few months after Gideon died, Narva heard about the concept of a message in a bottle. So she wrote Gideon a little note and we popped it in a bottle and polluted the sea. <laughs> um, and then um, we did it again a few weeks ago because we thought that Isaac wouldn't have remembered that, ta- that the first time. So, yeah, he's very sort of... Present. Very, very present. Yeah. We had um, yeah. my mother-in-law's 80th birthday last weekend and usually I'm quite front of mind about these like what we need to do to incorporate Lily but this weekend I hadn't had time to to really think about it because we've been racing around to all these different events and we flew to Tasmania for it 
And um, we'd all sat down at the table and then my sister-in-law jumped up and she was like, oh, I nearly forgot Lily mm-hmm. and pulled a big picture of Lily out, mm-hmm. popped it at the head of the table, mm-hmm. got a candle, lit it and, and put a flower in the vase. I was like, okay, we can all continue now. <laughs> Lily's here. And just things like that yeah. um, make such a difference, yeah. I think, knowing that family will do that. And I, I say if you want that, you tell them to do it or you yeah. bring it yourself. But having something like that and then being included in the count of grandchildren, yes. all of those things they sound small but they can make such a big difference in how you feel um, in keeping your child's memory alive and I think the other thing to say is also about managing your relationship Um, and so we saw a psychologist after Lily died together we would go to her and just talk and work things out Um, in my brain I wanted to make sure I was grieving properly which (laughs) makes me laugh now so I remember going to the psychologist and being like right so what do we need to do to make sure that we're doing this properly so that we don't end up with these significant mental health disorders 20 in 20 years time let's just work it through and she just looked at me (laughs) like okay you can't grieve you know there's no right or wrong way in how you grieve and I quickly discovered that but doing that together gave us a focus that we wanted to ensure we were always keeping open communications with each other and um, finding a way to navigate our grief together because I think it can either really pull you together or it can be incredibly divisive. And there's plenty of experiences of both for many parents out there about the what happens in your own relationship when your child is not well or has a you know an end of life issue what do you think about that Peg? yeah yeah i agree um we had started our relationship with a vsk probably about 3 or 4 months before Gideon died with the purpose of supporting Narva, but we were lucky in that we had got two counsellors. So one sort of did activities with her and the other um, um, was sort of specific for Lee and I, and we still see them. Um, Probably I chat a bit more to them, but there's still that, um, you know, open communication. And um, I think, um, you know, before our new baby was born, it was helpful for both of us to talk with them about it because I guess, um, you know, we we wanted to make sure that by this new baby coming in that, you know, we were concerned about how the dynamic would change because before that Gideon was the focus and we still wanted him to be the focus but the baby to have a home and it, it's worked out okay and we've sort of um they can mesh together um but I think talking about it with um a counsellor or whatever support person who's outside of the family does make it helpful yeah sure so keep the lines of communication yeah. open yeah mm, and even a long time after like I know we were intensely focused on it immediately after Lily died and particularly in the build-up to Jasper being born Um, And I think it probably would have been better if we'd also gotten more support while she was alive. We did have very special Mm -hmm. kids counsellor too, but when you're in the middle of parenting your child, you don't have any time for anything. You don't have time for your own mental health. You're looking after your child. So you do push it aside. Um, And after Lily died, I was probably because I wanted to make sure I was grieving properly, (laughs) I was very focused on it. So we had our very special kids counsellor. We had our psychologist as well. It was probably overkill, but um, we did both of those. And then I started to focus on things for my self-care. So I did acupuncture 
um, I also started to have um, facials and massages while I was pregnant and it was a bit like therapy. It sounds quite indulgent, but it actually helped me. And it was a bit that when I was talking about being able to switch off from grief before, you know, going to have a facial and to focus on me for a little bit gave me that time out as well. And they were very simple little things that I did in the massages, but it gave me a time to stop and focus. And I, tr- and I encouraged my husband to do a bit of that too. He was probably more into the massage than the facials, but um <laughs> But just having those things that you can do for yourself that you carve out, which is really hard when you're a busy mum as well or you've got lots of things going on and you're working and trying to fit grief in. But I think if you don't carve that space out for yourself, nobody else will and there's a really important bit of work that you need to do to get to a, a you know ground zero even to start building back up from again. Coming out of the shadows into the sunshine. Yeah, and the sunshine is there. It's there even in those horrible moments and we said that in our eulogy too, thinking about what you were mm. saying about the eulogy and that um, horrendous moment of watching my, you watched your husband mm-hmm. carry Gideon mm-hmm. out and I watched my husband carry Lily in a coffin down the aisle of a church and I remember just sobbing and thinking he should be holding mm-hmm. his daughter's hand as he walks her down the aisle to become a bride, not carrying her in a casket. But even in those most terrible moments, there were bursts of sunshine and I think that's the piece to hold on to, that you will come through it. And we used to always say to ourselves, it will be okay and if it's not okay yet, it's not the end. And it just used to keep repeating it. It kept me going. I think it's actually a a lyric from quite a cheesy song, but I didn't know (laughs) that. And it just kept us going in the hardest of moments. Yeah, speaking about what you said, Priyanka, I think having something to distract yourself afterwards is quite helpful. Um, I think two things that I found helpful was one was going back to work in a limited capacity. Um, I sort of was going back to research and I felt felt that because I could do that on my own terms um, and it was quite solitary work, I enjoyed it and I could think about Gideon and do my own work and I felt that I could have a little bit of a sense of achievement that I had completed something and um, because prior, when Gideon was sick, I had sort of felt to myself, wow, mothering him and looking after him is really you know, a revelation. It's like, oh, this is the most important job. How can I ever go back to my role? And I'm a doctor. And then gradually from going back bit by bit to the research work, I actually did get the interest to go back in a clinical sense as well. So that was one thing that I found distraction good. And the other one was um, physical activity, like you said. I like running and we became involved in um, a charity that raises money for paediatric brain um, tumour research, the Robert Connor Dawes Foundation, and they have a yearly uh, run. And so we had to train up, um, you know, to the 10 kilometre event. So that was really good having um, got Lee and I, both of us motivated to do that. And we had family and friends that joined us as well. So it was a reason to get up and exercise. And then we were able to achieve a goal. We ran, we got the family involved, we raised an, an amount of money. So that was a good achievement. Um, and that's something we've continued. So I think setting yourself small goals is is helpful. 
And and the nice thing, I suppose, as well, is that now some of that research money has been able to be directed into something specific. And um, in in Gideon's name, we've established a, a research scholarship in brain cancer research. And it's nice to know that hopefully something will be produced from this and, you know, will help, you know, another child. But it's nice to also be able to know that his name will be read by people not necessarily um, who know him in a social sense. Yeah. 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 And and that just evolved. That wasn't something we had planned either. It's just sort of happened. And I suppose it's a nice, a positive that's come out of the situation. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think as well with grief that you learn that you will be blindsided by certain things. So as much as as time goes on, in the beginning you'll be blindsided by everything, but as time goes on you can start to anticipate it a bit. So starting to plan to know that the, the things that I call the secondary losses, like the first day of school or starting childcare or kinder or you know, right up until children getting married – you will feel it and sometimes your body will feel it before you even realise why. Even this year, um, Lily would have been going off to um, kinder kinder or prep and I'd forgotten and I was feeling horrible all week when the kids were going back to school and then suddenly it hit me why. I was like, of course, usually I'm much better at predicting these things. But being able to start to plan for big days, whether it be Christmas or, you know, it's something of a different faith celebration, important day to start to anticipate what you might feel and prepare yourself for it so that it's less blindsiding when it happens. And in our family, I'm the one that will anticipate, whereas my husband will usually get completely smacked around the head with it, no matter how many times I tell him to plan for it. Um, So where you can put that into practice, that can really help. Um, And... Also, I think one of the things that I've really realised is that you are a different person, but sometimes your friends and family can find that really hard. And after your child dies, they are hoping without realising it that eventually you'll get over it and everything will go back to normal. And you need accepting within yourself that it will never go back to how it was before. It will always be different because you have been through this incredibly life-changing experience. So for you, it's about learning to love that new person. And then everybody else has to come to terms with that new person too. And that can be a big shock, I think, for friends and family um, to learn to accept. So it's just something to be aware of. The new you. That's right, yes. Okay. Thanks for sharing so bravely today the devastation of of loss and and some fabulous advice and uh, thoughts for parents who are about to go through or are going through um, these terrible times at the moment. So thanks for taking part. Thanks for having us. Thank Thank you. You've been listening to the Royal Children's Hospital podcast series, Life, Love and Loss, Caring for a Child Who is Dying. The Royal Children's Hospital Victorian Paediatric Palliative Care Program and all its health professionals would like to thank those parents who've generously taken part in this series. You can search all the episodes online at rch.org.au forward slash podcasts. I'm Lena Keneva. Thanks for listening.